This morning we have two Old Testament passages, passages from the law of God, that have a bearing on our sermon text from Luke's Gospel, chapter 8. Our two passages from the law of God are, first of all, Leviticus 15, verses 25 to 31, followed by Numbers 15, verses 37 to 41. After the reading of these, we'll turn to our sermon text, Luke 8, 43 to 48. First of all, from the law of God, Leviticus 15, beginning at verse 25. Now, if a woman has a discharge of her blood many days, not at the period of her menstrual impurity, or if she has a discharge beyond that period, all the days of her impure discharge she shall continue as though in her menstrual impurity. She is unclean. Any bed on which she lies all the days of her discharge shall be to her like her bed at menstruation, and everything on which she sits shall be unclean, like her uncleanness at that time. Likewise, whoever touches them shall be unclean, and shall wash his clothes, and bathe in water, and be unclean until evening. When she becomes clean from her discharge, she shall count off for herself seven days, and afterwards she will be clean. Then on the eighth day she shall take for herself two turtle doves or two young pigeons, and bring them into the priest to the doorway of the tent of meeting. The priest shall offer the one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering. So the priest shall make atonement on her behalf before the Lord because of her impure discharge. Thus you shall keep the sons of Israel separated from their uncleanness so that they will not die in their uncleanness by the defiling my tabernacle that is among them. And now we turn to a very different law in Numbers chapter 15, verses 37 to 41. The Lord also spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and tell them that they shall make for themselves tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations, and that they shall put them on the tassel of each corner, that they shall put on the tassel of each corner a cord of blue. It shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord, so as to do them and not follow after your own heart and your own eyes, after which you played the harlot, so that you may remember to do all my commandments and be holy to your God. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. Now to Luke chapter 8 and verse 43. And a woman who had a hemorrhage for twelve years and could not be healed by anyone came up behind him and touched the fringe of his cloak. And immediately her hemorrhage stopped 
And Jesus said, Who is the one who touched me? And while they were all denying it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone did touch me, for I was aware that power had gone out of me. When the woman saw that she had not escaped notice, she came trembling and fell down before him and declared in the presence of all the people the reason why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Amen. The solid foundation upon which every spiritual comfort of biblical Christianity ultimately rests is the truth. The objective truth. These amazing things of which we read in the Gospels are true. Confirmed in the presence of multiple eyewitnesses. Sealed in time by the blood of martyrs who knew the truth of their own solemn testimony. They're carefully researched by men of science, physicians such as Luke, for instance, and other men of integrity. Researched by men who knew what they were doing, who were finally able to offer no other explanation than the one Jesus himself gave to Zacchaeus, that the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. Think of it, friends. Make this your constant meditation. Make it your study. Make it the food and drink and medicine of your souls. The infinite condescension and love of Christ in this gospel can take the sinner's breath away. All this glorious divine love and mercy and saving power poured out for me, for us, To reflect on the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ, on the day he laid aside his eternal glory, left the throne of heaven, entered into this broken, dysfunctional world, he came not to seek and to save those who were already doing just fine without him. He came not to seek and to save his spiritual peers or any colleagues that he might find successfully pursuing the righteousness found in the law. That would be a fool's errand. That would be wasted effort because he simply has no peer. Besides him, there is none who does good, not even one. When Jesus came, he came to seek and to save the lost. To save us, a race of men who started out long ago on a journey, but very soon lost our way lost our compass, lost our map, lost all our power to reach the intended destination. Adam had scarcely left the dock of human history before we, his children, his crew, became a race of men adrift for thousands of years on this wide ocean of time and space. Men with absolutely nothing to contribute to our own rescue and happy homecoming until Jesus comes and finds us. We're lost. Now this absolutely desperate situation is a very difficult one for human pride to accept. 
We might possibly find it within ourselves to acknowledge, as children of Adam, the loss of some of our original endowments and resources. The loss, after all, is frankly impossible to deny. All we have to do is read, for comparison's sake, the first two chapters of Genesis, and then look around us and look within us today. It's pretty plain that sin has taken this beautiful world placed under the care of this beautiful human race and left us broken and bleeding. Internally we are within our souls. Socially we are. As families we are. As nations we are. The whole world's completely out of joint. But typically, the sons of Adam don't raise the white flag of surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ until we have spent our last round in the rebellion against him. And until that blessed moment of unconditional surrender to Christ, sinners always seem to think we've got at least one more round left in the chamber, one more human virtue by which we might somehow justify ourselves and rob him of some degree of glory. We think, for instance, well, what about my faith? I've heard the good news of Jesus and received him by faith. Haven't I? My faith. Haven't I at least contributed that to my own rescue? And it's the castaway congratulating himself for holding in his hands at last the sturdy line thrown to him by the captain of another ship. In the well-known words of that captain's communications officer, a man by the name of Paul, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. If we're rescued from the perils we're in, that rescue comes by one who came for us, and found us, and threw us a line, and drew us in, and lowered his ladder, and brought us aboard, and washed us, and warmed us, and fed us, and is presently in the process of bringing us home. Hallelujah! What a Savior we have! This morning's passage introduces us to an anonymous woman, Just one face in the crowd, really. A woman whose situation wasn't only desperate, but whose particular medical condition left her feeling that desperation more keenly, perhaps, than I as a man can begin to imagine. Let me begin this morning by noting this about Dr. Luke and the various women he mentions in his gospel. He mentions quite a few. Some of them he names... Others, he leaves anonymous. In these first eight chapters, he's already named Elizabeth, Mary, Anna, Mary Magdalene, Joanna, and Susanna. All commendable women, women to be celebrated, women to be remembered, women who lived to serve the interests of the kingdom of God in their generation. He names also the adulteress Herodias, presumably so that for all coming generations her name should be remembered as well, as a type of faithless, 
fickle feminism that all future women should scorn. But he's mentioned anonymously so many other women and girls as well. There was Simon Peter's mother-in-law. There was the widow of Nian. And there was that sinful woman forgiven in Simon the Pharisee's home. And Jairus' daughter. And now this poor woman suffering the uncontrolled discharge of blood. Now Luke is a physician, of course. He's also a Christian and a consummate gentleman. Throughout his gospel, he protects the names and privacy of women who might have reason to want such protection, either because as the recipient of some special grace recorded in the gospel, she and her family might be thronged by curiosity seekers, the paparazzi of her day. Or sometimes because there's something in the woman's life and background that modesty best leaves unmentioned. This particular woman's case is desperate. For 12 long years, she's been living in a condition of unremitting menstrual impurity. Physically, such a loss of blood must have left her drained of energy, not to mention her missing out on the kind of life that more robust health allows a woman to enjoy. Because socially, she's disabled as well. She may perhaps be able to conceal the cause of her withdrawal from society, but she certainly can't conceal the withdrawal itself. For the most part, she's just vanished from society. The law we read from Leviticus 15 requires it, and even if it didn't, who's got the stamina to get out and socialize under those conditions? This social disability points us to another restriction of God's law under the Old Covenant. Spiritually, she's disqualified. Because life in the Spirit is a life spent among other people, among other worshippers in the temple and synagogue. Under the law of the Old Covenant, for seven days a month, a woman was excused from the duties of public worship. But when that normal period of time had elapsed, she's welcomed back as clean and ready to worship. This woman was never welcomed back never welcomed back for 12 years. And medically she's been disappointed. Again and again she was. Verse 43, she could not be healed by anyone. That's Luke the physician's assessment of the woman's case. She could not be healed by anyone. After many attempts by multiple practitioners over the better part of 12 years, she's hopeless. Hopeless. But there's another aspect of her condition that renders her a desperate woman as well. 
we briefly considered the physical aspect, the social, the spiritual, and the medical. All these perspectives on our problem are inseparably connected, of course, because it's one woman's life that we're talking about. Each aspect bears upon all the others and aggravates all the others. And this final aspect of her desperation, the financial aspect, is just as tightly knotted together with all the rest. She had spent all her living on physicians. Her pursuit of a remedy left her broke with nothing to show for it. What had she left to her? She's got no energy to do things. No enjoyment of life, no going out on the town or even to worship, no medical hope of change, and no money to pursue the matter any further. What had she left to her? Well, she had the news that Jesus is back in Capernaum. Then as now, he, he alone represents hope for the hopeless. Now this woman's faith in Jesus is informed, and yet it's imperfect. It's an informed faith because for all her personal problems and deficits and liabilities, she happens providentially to live in Capernaum, the epicenter of Jesus' great Galilean ministry. Everyone in Capernaum knows about him. Most had witnessed the wonders of power and grace he worked with a word or with a touch. Many had experienced these things for themselves in their own bodies. Lepers were being cleansed. Paralytics were being cured. Demoniacs were being set free. The dead were being raised. Clearly the kingdom of God has come and this man Jesus is the door standing open to it. And yet her faith was still very imperfect. She hadn't met him personally. And she's certainly not about to meet him now, not in her condition. She won't speak to him. She won't face him. She won't interact with him at all if she can get away with it. And the crowd pressing around him, she thinks, this is the perfect cover. Matthew and Mark offer us the woman's thought processes as she moved toward him from behind in the crowd. Matthew 9, verses 20 and 21. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. It's an imperfect faith that seeks the gift without the giver. An imperfect faith that seeks the blessing without the relationship. An imperfect faith that from behind, in a crowd, grasps at him in a strange mix of faith and fear, hope and desperation. A faith that lays hold of his tassel without laying hold of him. Beloved, here are the two points to be made. The first is that our faith is imperfect too. Yours is, mine is. 
And that's an everyday problem for us. Imperfect faith causes us such chronic grief, such heartache, to live out our remaining years in this daily admixture of faith and fear. To live out these years groaning, suffering within this collapsing tent of our own mortality, hoping, praying for the coming of that promised day when this mortal will put on immortality. Trusting, perhaps much more than we should, in the peripherals of the Christian faith and not in the person and work of Christ himself, Christ alone. It's an imperfect faith that trusts, for instance, in the church or trusts in the law or trusts in the sacraments or trusts even in our own faith. Now, all of these things may be praiseworthy. All by grace may draw us close by the Savior, but they are not He. These things I just mentioned, they're as the tassels of his garment, but they're, but they're not his unspeakably glorious, gracious person. Our faith then is imperfect if it resides in the tassel or the fringe or the hem of his garment or anything else that is not he. And yet my second point is this. Jesus commends even this woman's imperfect faith. It's poor. It's broken. It's mixed and confused, perhaps, but what of it there is? Jesus commends. What of it there is proves effectual. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. And immediately her discharge of blood ceased. Her faith is commended then first by being effectually answered in a cure. And then shortly afterwards, when constrained to confess in all its particulars her condition and its cure, he commends her again. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Now, it's an abbreviated expression the Savior uses here in verse 48, of course. The captain of our salvation is telling this social castaway that her grip on the line, a lifeline that he himself had cast over to her, had saved her, had made her well. But was it faith that saved her? Everyone has faith. Will a Muslim's faith save him? Will the secular humanist's faith save him? What about the Buddhist or the Taoist or the Hindu? All of them have faith. Some of them, I shudder to think, exercise a personal faith that's stronger and more vigorous and more tenacious than mine or yours. We who are in trouble, who suffer various afflictions of body, soul, mind, and spirit, all of us, I suspect, want 
a stronger grasp on the line, a stronger grip of faith. But human strength, human resolve, human confidence to stand out in a crowd and declare our particular faith, these things aren't the real issue at all. The real issue is who's at the other end of the line. At the mere surreptitious grasp of a tassel, a grasp of imperfect faith mixed with copious fear, at that grasp, power went out from Jesus. He perceived it. She perceived it. Beloved, let us never be shy. Let us never be backward about exercising the very weak and imperfect faith granted us by grace. Let's not lose heart in our circumstances as though by our own strength we must now draw ourselves up hand over hand over the rail and into the arms of our Savior. It's not that way at all. Human strength fails us. It always does and it always will. The truth is that in the gospel, the captain of your salvation has thrown you a lifeline. Take it. Grasp it with all the failing strength within you. Fix your eyes on him. Make certain it's he, the Christ of the Bible and no other at the far end of the line. Because this Jesus has ample power to draw you in, draw you aboard, bring you to safety, and bring you home. Yours, by grace through faith, yours is simply to hold on.